Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So uh, I first want to appreciate both of you for work on this. Uh, some very provocative pieces and um, just the whole inquiry into uh, into war and peace uh, is very rich Dharma practice and also thank you Alan for all the the years that you've been focusing on engaged practice um, really to a great benefit of the greater uh, Buddhist community and all the years you Barbara have been putting out issue after issue 30 years of inquiring mind uh, real contribution so uh, we thought that um, that we'd explore uh, some of these topics I'm curious how many people have looked at uh, at some of the articles in this issue. Okay, good, a few. Uh, and I uh, put out uh, yesterday on the uh, e-group, if you're on the announcement list, um, links that are on the, uh, on the internet. If you go to Inquiring Mind and a few of the, the key articles that are most... Uh, no provocative um, you can uh, you can see right there uh, much of the issue is not on the internet, but there's a few of the the major articles that that are on the internet so thought we'd explore you you can uh, uh, open up for a discussion and this is more than just a a one way lecture this is uh, to have us uh, explore together and have a conversation about it. Uh, so, why don't you um, take it away? Uh, it's appropriate that um, we. Oh, okay. It's appropriate that um, this is the eve of uh, Memorial Day weekend, and uh, that Do it was. Like this. Do it like this. Okay. Yeah. It's closer. That, yeah. Okay. Um, that was um, uh, not. Uh, something planned, but um, I began to think about it this past week. And also appropriate that this is the 100th anniversary of world, the beginning of World War I. You know, um, and I'm sure some of you have seen all the books that are coming out about World War I, you know, a, a war that nobody can really figure out you know, why it was fought and when you think of all the suffering and carnage that came out of that war. That's appropriate, too, on this anniversary. So I just wanted to say that the whole um, impetus for uh, creating the inquiring mind, this inquiring mind the way we did, was to invite inquiry. And so it's exciting to me to be meeting with you all tonight because what I wanted more than anything else was for people to have dialogue around issues which are certainly not simple. Um, and uh, I'm very interested to hear, you know, when we get to that in a few moments, uh, what was raised for you and what you're wondering about and uh, what moved you and what made you mad. And... Uh, you know, what you're thinking right now. Yeah, um, I had, we were really on the same page with this, and I think back to when I began at Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which was uh, just as the first Gulf War was beginning, and we had, uh, I think, sorry, there were people here who were at these town meetings that we had for uh, that were organized by Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And then there were several of them over the next period of years uh, as the uh, war 
kept unfolding in uh, in different forms. And my wish at that time was to create a forum where it would be safe to... And we, actually, we had one of those on the here uh, at the beginning of the Iraq War. Uh, I think as the bombing began, we had a... There were people sort of hanging outside the windows. It was really packed. Uh, but what I had wanted to do uh, was to create a forum in which it would be safe for people to explore the various sides. In other words, not presume that everyone was opposed to uh, this particular war, that particular war, but to actually assume that in any population, including here in Berkeley, uh, there were going to be people who were in favor of it. There were going to be people who were ambivalent or confused, and to create a, a, a to be to be a venue where those uh, not just moral verities but moral unclarities could be expressed. And you know what? We couldn't do it then. It just, I never managed to do it until this issue. Uh, and, you know, I know that from, from some of the feedback that we've been getting, uh, there, people appreciate the issue, but there are people, you know, who say, well, why did you emphasize this or why did you, you know, to you let the military, uh, uh, you sort of promoted the military or you promoted this or that side. And I think uh, I have a very definite opinion. And one of the things that uh, I think we did was we, to some extent, the extent to which you can do it as an editor, we stepped back from our personal opinions and uh, to provoke discussion. So that's what I would love to do here as well. Uh, and find what resonated with you, what made you uncomfortable, uh, and see where this discussion goes. Because I feel like this, the issue itself is a, uh, it's in print, it's in, here it is in black and white. Uh, but it continues to, it continues to unfold as a, as a narrative about our society. So where do we go from here? Um, James, yeah, James, last week you talked about, particularly about mm -hmm. the Bhikkhu Bodhi piece. Yeah, we, we explored uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's, if you weren't here, um, one of the first pieces in the issue where Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, talks about how in the Pali Canon, the, the Buddha doesn't say anywhere, doesn't condone uh, violence anywhere, but um, uh, and talks about uh, the um, the importance of not harming, no matter what the circumstances are. But he begs the question about uh, complex situations where uh, somebody is um, threatening or harming uh, innocent or defenseless. Uh, um, beings or people and doesn't say what one should do if there's any time that that seems justified. Bhikkhu Bodhi um, talked about, in his mind, uh, he had two models, the liberative uh, framework where if you're going for enlightenment, you don't, uh, uh, in this lifetime, you don't harm no matter what. That is your guiding principle. But then he also talks about a pragmatic karmic framework where reality sometimes is much more complex than than good and and bad, and one should never never use force. And he talks about a number of instances that I'm sure you can uh, think of, whether it's uh, you know a, a, an oppressor that's committing genocide or uh, somebody who's harming uh, harming a, a defenseless person. There are times where it one could say it does make karmic sense to 
uh, intervene and use force if necessary. And he said, even though he's one of the major translators of the Pali Canon, he says that he, in his mind, sees that uh, it's a lot more complex than uh, one should never or always, and that there are times that he he feels it's justified to use force. So we explored that one, and also uh, Anne Wright's uh, um, article on uh, um, who was a... Uh, in the State Department and uh, and in the armed forces for um, many years and has become a pacifist once she uh, got into uh, Buddhist uh, Buddhist practices and uh, talks and and, and uh, is is very uh, committed and engaged in uh, speaking out against force although there are times that she can still see that it's uh, that it's necessary. So those are the two articles that we we explored. I'm I'm in, just interested to know whether um, there's anyone here who was at that discussion uh, last week and came away changed in some way. You know that you came in thinking one thing and came out after. Uh, reading and discussing with one another came out thinking something else or wondering in in a new way. I'm just curious what you got out of that discussion last week. It, it's okay if you um, you know not to um, not to have a clear memory of that, but it, it might be interesting if if it comes to anybody what you know what. Um, how they were changed, what they learned, how they were surprised. Well, we thought this week we would focus more on the articles um, uh, about the teaching mindfulness pre-deployment. And um, I'm just wondering how many people here read that group of articles okay a couple people well maybe you know if if some of you have thoughts after having read those you could share them and then maybe we'll read aloud some passages from opposing from a, a, a taking opposing views so that the rest of you who haven't had a chance to read it yet, could still participate in a discussion. And uh, just a little background, as probably you know, uh, mindfulness is applied now in most walks of life from schools to Kaiser and, uh, and health organizations and um, um, businesses, etc., and in recent years, it's been applied to the military, and there's been a very um, um, focused effort in bringing mindfulness to um, to uh, servicemen and women um, as part of their training, because there are some benefits that have been shown, uh, whether it's um, mitigating uh, PTSD or uh, having uh, better judgment and uh, lessening the suffering uh, that that might be uh, caused through the stress that comes from combat. Uh, And it's quite controversial because some people are saying, well, you're training uh, people to be more mindful killers, and is this what the Dharma is about? And others saying, well, if this is... If this is lessening suffering, maybe this is a good thing. And there's some really uh, powerful articles, both by uh, a couple of the main proponents who are teaching mindfulness to the military, as well as an article by John Kabat-Zinn, um, the, the uh, person who's introduced mindfulness-based stress reduction to large segment of the population. And then there's a, a very strong article uh, about... Uh, the commitment two articles the commitment to nonviolence and the and that is where uh, what the Buddha is talking about and uh, aligning with 
uh, the first precept of not causing harm or suffering. So that's the, the, the backdrop for, for that conversation. So there were a few people who read these. Um, was there anything that you wanted to raise? or? Yeah. yeah, Jim, hold on just a second. I uh, came across the news about MBSR being taught to military early this year, I guess, and when MBSR teachers gathered in the South Bay a couple of months ago, I talked to John Kabat-Zinn, and I said, just, just one-on-one at the end of the meeting, I said, you know, I'm kind of interested by this and tr- troubled by this, perhaps. You know, I've been a, been a near pacifist for you know, a long time. During Vietnam, I said, you know, I, I will never carry a gun and aim it at somebody but I shouldn't avoid Vietnam because I don't want to die. I'll join the Red Cross and go and bandage people up or something like that. But John Kabat-Zinn you know, said you know, it's, it's complex, and we think that mindfulness, calmness is, is uh, you know, a good thing. If people are going to be... If, and I, I say I would never be a police officer also because I would never be able to carry a gun and shoot somebody. But I'm glad there are people that are willing to be police officers, at least the ones that are... <laughs> not, 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 not wild and aggressive and, and just trying to find a, a legal way to, to be aggressive. Um, and I was really struck in, the, in one of these articles, in the John Kabat-Zinn interview with you, I guess, or maybe both of you. Both of us. Yeah. Both of you. Where he says, you know, when the question was first raised to me, I, my, my first reaction, and I use this word reaction intentionally as opposed to re- response, my first reaction was kind of this pacifist response of, you know, how can you t- train people to be mindful and be more effective killers? And then, you know, you, as, as, you, as we bring mindfulness to life, we become a little bit less polarized and a little more holistic and see that maybe there is uh, complexity to the, whole, to the whole matter. And um, maybe we, uh, you know, I, I'm not quite bodhisattva material, I guess. I still swat mosquitoes. But um, but we kind of aim towards as as much wholeness and, and calmness and, and non-harmingness as we can muster within ourselves. And mindfulness helps us move that direction. If people are going to be carrying guns, you'd rather have them being a little bit calm and less jumpy and less trigger-happy. But it's still confusing. I, you know, I'm still ambivalent. I don't, you know, uh, and I think this is in John's article and then in a conversation, I've had extended conversations with Liz Stanley, who was the person who invented this MMFIT, the, uh, uh, the program that's going on in the Army, and uh, she's the one who does the training. And I think there's a political question behind this, uh, and it's not sufficiently addressed in this article. In, the, in this series of articles. And to me, what that is, uh, it's not that I would begrudge uh, mindfulness to any, any person in any situation. Uh, I do have a question. This, one, of the, one of the questions, uh, perhaps it's a, uh, it's a dharmic question, is whether mindfulness itself is deconstructive of the urge, the motion towards violence. Uh, John would argue yes. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm certainly not sure the way, you know, in a situation where one might say that mindfulness is being commodified. But that's not the political question. The political question that John raises and Liz Stanley raised, and I think this is really pivotal, is not whether the sol- whether soldiers uh, merit uh, mindfulness training, but what orders are they following? How does this apply in a war that is fundamentally immoral and perhaps illegal? Uh, and you know what John says. I think at some point in the interview, I think it's in the interview, he says, "Well." We really should be teaching this to the senators and the State Department. And that's right, because in a civilian run, in, in, a, in, a, in a state like ours, 
uh, where it's good that we have uh, a military un, you know, under civilian control, right? It, it's the commander-in-chief is a civilian. Uh, and the, uh, it takes direction from these political, from, from political, supposedly democratic uh, decision-makers. But the reality is that those people are corrupt. And their motivations are self-serving. And mindfulness, that's, if we're going to apply mindfulness, if we, if we think it is actually deconstructive of unwholesome thoughts, well, the leverage point is there, right? And that's, um, the troops are doing what they are ordered to do, and to do anything different would that wouldn't work very well either. But what is it that they're being ordered to do? Or maybe teach mindfulness to the uh, the voting populace. Well, right. Or that, teach, teaching it to the media who right. are so right. controlling the the mindless behavior of the voting populace. Yeah. Or or teach it uh, teach re- require mindfulness before someone becomes a lobbyist or a political donor. Maybe so. Yeah. Liz. Uh, when you speak, put it uh, right next to your lips like this. So that brings the whole question to me of whether we can change the world by getting a whole lot of people to be more sensitive and more mindful, or are there much more powerful uh, factors going on in terms of social structures, economic structures, political structures, and I think that most of my life I have definitely felt that to be the case, having been a history major much for a much longer period of time than I've been interested in Buddhism. And I'm just kind of, um, I, I I, I, I'm just always hesitant about the idea that we can get things to change on a global way by getting individuals to change, or lots of individuals to change. And so I don't know what you think about that. Well, can I see that? Yeah. yeah um, Right. I think, I think you're right. Uh, first of all, in dharmic terms, mindfulness is one of the factors of enlightenment. It's one of the steps on the Eightfold Path. Uh, it's very important. It's not everything. Uh, it is a function. Uh, it's, it's an enlightened function. It is, in and of itself, uh, positive and wholesome, but there are other elements on that path that make, make up a whole path. That's presuming we're talking about Buddhism. Uh, so it's... I've actually just been teaching a workshop on, on, on Buddhism and social justice in, in Houston. Uh, and you know the way I see things, and I think this has been the emphasis of the engaged Buddhist movement, is that we have a society that is made up, as you say, of it's made up of uh, groups, communities, uh, groups that are privileged, groups that are oppressed, uh, and it's we have a socially determined reality, according to our race, according to our gender, according to our class. All of those things are very powerful factors. So we have to look at suffering in this systemic way uh, and you know I have I'm just not convinced that mindfulness is going to be the solitary tool that that is applied for social transformation uh, but I would say uh, we need both kinds of action you know we need we need to understand the aspects of the social aspects of society, and you know, advocate for peace, advocate for economic justice, and so on, as as groups, as a society, as communities. But it's also true that those groups are the the unit uh, the, the the unit of composition of those groups is the individual, uh, and. So sometimes there's leverage that you can work 
in, a, in an entire system by actually changing a person who is in a key position in that system. Uh, so you don't spurn anybody. But I don't, I don't think that mindfulness alone is, uh, is sufficient. And I also think uh, that it's certainly not mindfulness necessarily as Buddhism. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how much you talk about that here. Buddhism is a, is a you know, it's a marginal uh, spiritual path in this country, which is fortunate, because if you look at what's going on in Burma and Sri Lanka, which is a whole other conversation, where you have Buddhism that is in, that is aligned with the state, uh, that's really, it's just as bad as any other religion aligned with the state. Where they collude, then basically uh, religion loses its integrity. So we can have integrity, but we may not have so much effectiveness. How do, you know, what do we do? I'm wondering, um, in your interviews and in uh, doing this issue, if there were instances where someone, say, in the military, uh, became trained in mindfulness and became clearer as to the consequences of their actions and had some reluctance or hesitation to cause harm through uh, through their mindfulness practice. Well, um, Take the, uh, the mic. Yeah, put it right um, next to your mouth. You know, I don't know about that, but I do know that there were a few examples which were um, offered to us, both by Amishi Jha, who was the... Uh, neuroscience researcher who, who uh, has studied the MFIT program, and also by Liz Stanley and by John uh, Kabat-Zinn, where um, you know, the example which is always given is of uh, somebody who um, you know, was walking across a bridge and uh, a, 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 uh, one, of, a, a, one of our troops and who had been trained in mindfulness and had previously uh, had, you know, previous deployments where he had, you know, a kind of mindlessly uh, shot. And he, you know, he, uh, uh, after this training, he um, uh, took more care to notice that, in fact, these, you know, these were villagers who, you know, and, and that he, you know, so that the example that's always given is that um, that there are instances where somebody who's been trained in mindfulness pre-deployment is less likely to kill civilians, is less likely to just shoot uh, anybody. But we, you know, we we really pushed them in our in our interviews um, to, uh, on whether. Uh, uh, you know, uh, whether they thought that um, the PTSD, you know, was sometimes uh, caused by uh, fighting a, a war that you didn't believe in. Or, and nobody who we spoke with um, picked up on that. You know, whereas if we were talking about the Vietnam War, I'm, uh, that wouldn't be true. Yeah, and... Honestly, that because that example was given again and again, I am really dubious about it. You know, is this you know the only one? Well, no. Or did it happen at all? Or you know, uh, but what what I do know uh, is because it's work that I've done, uh, not coming from mindfulness training. But I do know people who uh, found a Buddhist path either before or after they joined the military, and 
they became conscientious objectors, and they would not fight. They would not pick up a weapon or they would put down the weapon. And I think uh, whether that's an artifact of mindfulness training, that I can't say. But given the fact that they took up this whole path, mindfulness is an element of it. Now, and and one of the uh, points and uh, um, criticisms that sometimes people have of uh, just bringing mindfulness to uh, to society and various applications without being based in Dharma principles that you're learning you're learning something about being attentive but the um, links of the Eightfold Path that have to do with uh, non-harming right relationship um, uh, guidelines for ethical behavior, integrity, um, wisdom, all of those aspects of the right. Eightfold Path are, uh, are separated out if it's just this is how you pay attention. And attention can be attention to anything, can be to being a better marksman or being... Uh, you know, a, a better butcher or, a, or whatever it is. And actually, you coming from the Zen practice, you know, then uh, the, 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 the butcher analogy is, is one that's used right there in Zen. But with the, with the context of integrity and wisdom separated out, that's the big question that, that many people have. There's a gray zone, first of all, in the definition, in in looking at definitions, uh, attention is not the same as mindfulness, uh, and attention is also uh, a factor in one in these various dharmic systems. But I had an opportunity to ask His Holiness the Dalai Lama that very question, you know, about uh, so is. the training of a soldier uh, in the particularity of mindfulness is that dharmic. Now, John Kabat-Zinn says yes. He, he really, he feels like, well, at least the system that he's teaching uh, is, is fundamentally dharmic. But His Holiness Dalai Lama said, said no. And he said, you know, even a suicide bomber has uh, has the has is expressing a very clear attention, uh, and uh, so that that's actually where the core of the debate yeah. is. Yeah, um, and I don't know if any of you remember, but a number of years ago we had a really interesting forum in The Inquiring Mind where we had John Kabat-Zinn, Joseph Goldstein, uh, Jack Kornfield, and then Alan Wallace, who's also in the Tibetan tradition, uh, and then maybe somebody else too, Jan Chosen Bays or somebody yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that. that's right. Um, and, we're, and everybody was talking about, well, what is mindfulness? And, um, and Alan Wallace, who... Some of you may be familiar with his books or have uh, studied with him. Um, he was the one who, who, who kept saying, you know, a sniper could be mindful, um, whereas uh, John Kabat-Zinn was the one who most, most fully um, talked about, um, he saw mindfulness the way he wants people to be teaching it and the way he, he teaches it as including the whole Eightfold path, you know, including yeah. everything else. I'd be curious. Oh, there was, a, there, was some, there was a question or comment. Yeah. That. Okay. Good. Hello. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, I met you a long time ago, Alan, at uh, the Berkeley Zendo. Ah. So I know you're. I'm uh, still there. Okay. Except I'm here right now. You're, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so it, it occurred to me that you, you, you might be able to provide some uh, insight on the controversy of D.T. Suzuki. 
during the Second World War, where he supposedly supported the military, but some people say, no, that was not true. He, he was trying to protect, to survive in that civilization, yet he uh, has a long-standing association with uh, the Zen tradition there, which is associated with the military. Um, let me briefly, as briefly as I can, uh, certainly there's no question that uh, Japanese Buddhism was completely complicit with the war effort. Uh, they actually had something that they called imperial way Buddhism, which meant that the emperor was the Buddha, uh, you know, for Buddhists. For Shinto, the emperor was God. Uh, and uh, so what the will of the emperor was, which was transmitted through uh, the generals, uh, was... Buddha's work. And so it's okay to go and slaughter tens of thousands of Chinese, uh, of Koreans, of Indonesians, etc. The, the controversy around D.T. Suzuki, he said some very questionable... He was in Japan during the war. He, he made some questionable statements. There is some ambiguity about... Even about the trend what the translations actually say. What I think um, is that, and this comes from sort of my experience in Burma and other places, when you're in a situation of, when you're in a totalitarian situation, you have to find, you you have some accommodation. You're going to have to have a relationship with the powers that be or you're going to die. You know, uh, you can take, we can take from outside a very high-minded moral position. But when you're actually in that position, you have to figure out how to play the system. So I don't know what he was doing. He said some things that, to my mind, if one set of translations were right, were quite reprehensible. Uh, what his true feelings were uh, and what the impact of his life over the whole arc of it uh, I, I'm not sure. And that's where the debate is. And it's, it's pretty... Uh, one thing that's that troubling about the debate is there's just a lot of uh, ad hominem attacks and name-calling, and just like right there, something's wrong. You know? so, so I don't know. Yeah, this one. I mean, uh, killing civilians is clearly, you know, contrary to the laws of war and the Geneva yeah. Convention and so on and so forth. But that the point is, is whether a, a soldier will comply with the laws of war in a situation where that soldier is not being watched and right. has, has the ability, you know, it has a choice whether or not to comply and has the ability to actually kill in contravention of the laws of war. And... My thought is, is that mindfulness or training in mindfulness may mean that when that person is not being watched and when they do have a choice, that they decide to comply and to not kill when otherwise it's just, oh, that's the law. Who cares? Nobody can see what I'm doing. So I think that from that point of view, mindfulness can be quite a positive thing. Yeah, I agree. That's, That's a place that I... That was sort of a growing edge for me as we research this and one of the uh, one of the uh, discoveries in research is that mindfulness um, shortens what is sometimes called the refractory period where when you are in the middle when you're triggered and you lose uh, triggered uh, not no you mean pun, emotionally no triggered. Emotionally <laughs> triggered, yes. Activated. Yes. And uh, that you are um, uh, out, of your, out of your senses, out of your mind, so to speak, and you're activated. While you're in that period, you are not thinking so clearly. And, that, and anything can happen. That's when people yeah. do strange, bizarre things that they later say, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? And then they're... They've been locked up for years and years, and mindfulness shortens the refractory period so you have a, a bit less time that you're lost and, and out of your mind, 
so to speak. Well, I wish in this issue that we had, somebody wrote to me about this the other day, uh, felt we should have emphasized nonviolence more. And I think that, I think that that's true. Uh, yeah, we, we, we wanted to, and for a variety of reasons, it didn't come out as much. But what I would say about that, there's the other, another aspect of, another expression of mindfulness, if you will, is actually nonviolent training, nonviolence training. And that trains you not to react. And that training involves role play. It involves sitting in very stressful situations and not doing... Uh, it's like reprogramming yourself by being aware of what your feelings and responses are and not... You know, what, what Suzuki Roshi, uh, in our Zen tradition, what one thing he... One of his expressions was, you be the boss of you. You know, are you going to... Are you in control of your emotional life or is your emotional life running you? And I think that the thrust of mindfulness training is to allow you that measure of control to, to get you reestablished, regrounded out of that refractory period. Well, and there, there's one other point that, that uh, is a key in this, too. In my uh, understanding, or it's a question, really, does mindfulness lead to increased empathy? Does mindfulness allow us to have more sensitivity to what whoever is on the other side of our actions, what their reality is? Because with increased empathy, there's less likelihood of harming. When there's the disconnection, then the other is simply other. And therein, for me, lies the, the, the crux of whether this is, uh, whether mindfulness increases genuine nonviolence or uh, just more clarity in whatever action you're in the middle of. I think there's another dimension to this. And this is where uh, I once got in trouble at a, uh, in a, a, uh, a discussion of this where... I, the other angle is, who are you mindful of? And in what, so are you mindful of, is your first, is your training to be aware of, say, your squadron or your group? Uh, and if you want to move this to a corporate circumstance, you know, where mindfulness is being taught very widely, you know, so you're mindful of your work group, uh, but you're not necessarily mindful of what you're working on. So, you know, we get along very well, and we're, you know, in the manufacture of toxic widgets, you know, uh, and we have mindfulness, and we're comfortable in our working situation, but we're making something that has no social value or has negative social value. So this comes to the first step on the Eightfold Path, is right view. What are you looking at? What's in front of you? Is, is it your work group, or are you actually looking at the entire interconnectedness? So I, I think that, that expands the question a bit. And uh, right in the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the discourse on mindfulness, two, two points that this is uh, that the Buddha makes. Uh, one is mindful internally and externally. So you are aware of your own internal reality and those around you, their reality, and then also um, clearly comprehending what's called uh, uh, clear comprehension, uh, samasampajanya, uh, where you see the context right. of where you're operating and have the bigger picture, what are the consequences of, of these actions? And right there in, the, in that Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha says, these are all components of mindfulness that are crucial, whether or not 
mindfulness fitness training, mindfulness meditation fitness training, or whatever, M- I forget what MMFT stands for, something like that, um, that uh, whether those are communicated, clear comprehension, internal and external, seeing another person's reality, that's, that's a key piece, mm-hmm. whether you know, they, they take the full definition of what the Buddha is talking about. Uh, changing gears a little bit, a uh, question about uh, D- Dalai Lama, I guess, everybody's favorite person to quote these days. But in um, Dan Goleman's uh, Destructive Emotions, uh, the Dalai Lama has a, um, a paragraph in there where he talks about, I think this is not Theravadan or Mahayana even perhaps, but, um, but Tibetan. When someone is misbehaving, I can't remember what the term is, misbehaving or something, he, has, he says, well, there's four different responses that we teach. Um, you know, the, starting with you know, just, just sitting back and giving them space to grow on their own or teaching them something or scolding them, I think. I don't remember the exact sequence. But the fourth then is up to the point of, of actually taking um, some sort of a, I think the word is actually a violent action or at least t- using force to intervene. And wondering what you think about that, because it doesn't get to the point of killing necessarily, at least in that anecdote, but it gets to the point of using force. Do you want to respond? Um, when you use force, ideally you know that you do that with a no, with a knowledge that you are taking on the karmic implications of that force. Uh, So you do it very judiciously if you're going to do that. And I, you will do, we're going to, this is where the the training part is really interesting because you'll only, you're only going to do what you're trained to do. Uh, One of our teachers, Dogen said, you can only, uh, you can only go where your eye of practice has reached. So uh, you may, I mean, I w- I'm not advocating this at all. Uh, you may intervene with force if you have no other option. What the, one of the stories, which is interesting, it didn't come out in this issue. Uh, the Buddha, there was a, a war over water rights between the Shakyas and the Kolyas, two sort of city-states, including the Buddha's own family. Uh, And uh, the Buddha intervened twice, and and he got them to de-escalate, go back. And each time, uh, they regathered their forces. And uh, the third time, uh, he sat under a tree and let he allowed the war to happen because he couldn't stop it because it was karmically determined as far as this is what he said. It's what's said in the commentary. And it's, you know, tragic. Uh, and uh, he watched his, his nation be destroyed. Uh, and then in the commentary also, uh, the retreating Kolyas... And they went to ford the river, which had been the source of the water conflict, got caught in a sudden tidal surge, and they were all swept away. Uh, So there was no way for him to intervene beyond he did what he could. But also we have to remember that every negative consequence continues to... Things continue to to unfold. So one of the actual one of the outcomes of that was because uh, all the Shakya men were killed. There were all these widows in the Shakya clan who were left, and they became the core. They then became the core of the women's order. Uh, they were led by Mahapajapati, uh, and they. 
basically compelled the Buddha to create an order for women. So good and bad outcomes are not so clear always. But um, he didn't have the force to, to intervene. If you have it, you know, if you're in a situation like this, you're going to do, if you have skillful verbal means, if you have, you know, spiritual powers, you know, you'll do what you can to de-escalate the situation. And if what you have is just physical force, maybe you'll do that. And there will be, you know, there'll be consequences that unfold from that. But a bodhisattva takes them on willingly. Really, it is murky territory out there. It's also interesting to, to contemplate his state of mind as after two attempts to bring about peace to see, wow, there's nothing that I can do. But there's, there's a further... There's a further piece of narrative, which is the, gen, the kolyas, he, the tree that he was in was very spindly and thin. And the kolya said, well, why don't you, you, if you're going to sit here on the battlefield, why don't you come over, we have a big oak tree or something, you know, it's a lot of shade. And, he's, and the Buddha's response, at least in what I read, was uh, it's sweet to be uh, it's it's sweet just to be on one's native land. So he stood under the tree on, you know, his own tribe, his own nation. What do you make out of that? Um, he did not. He could have been more comfortable one place or the other, but he preferred to stay in in the place even if it was less comfortable that where he was really clearly in relationship, even if it was a pained relationship. That's what comes to mind anyway. And I would, I can only envision that as he saw all of this conflict, he would be practicing equanimity and realizing that there are some things that are outside of one's control and what to do, but find some peace within as all of this craziness is outside. Or perhaps he was weeping. And maybe he was weeping with equanimity. Yeah. <laughs> Any. Mindfulness practice. I, I imagine, I imagine when you're teaching uh, soldiers, you don't teach them "May all beings be happy." Uh, don't teach them metta. I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading it, but I assume that they don't include that in the training. Um, I don't know, but I know that um, w- one of the people that we interviewed, Margaret Cullen, was teaching um, with in this program set up by Amishi Jha, which was being researched. And she was teaching military wives and did teach metta. Oh. And, that you, and that's in The Inquiring Mind, and it's a good I piece. I haven't read it yet. So, oh, you read it? I haven't read oh, it. Oh, no, I'm okay. Well, anyway, uh, but I don't know in the MFIT whether they do or not. But, but, but it's a very... Um, I don't think it's not a. There's really no controversy, or less controversy, about teaching military wives mindfulness no. um, to military wives. But anyway, you might enjoy reading that. I was working in a. We had a group, the uh, Hung Shur was part of, that was developing chaplaincy materials for the U.S. military, uh, and it ran out of funding, so it. It hasn't happened yet, but the the problem that we got to was in this chaplaincy material, which is basic Buddhism. Based, that's you know for people of all faiths, so that other chaplains could could know what the resources were. The question was whether to put the precepts in this material or not. And we argued about this for several months, and uh, you know because if you say do not kill. You know, uh, gee, are you undermining 
uh, the the role of uh, of a combatant. Uh, finally, we decided to put them in, you know, because we didn't know what was going to happen with these materials anyway. We said, okay, this is this is the Dharma. Let's put it in, and you know, if somebody wants to censor it, let's deal with that down the road. But uh, you know, it's it's same question, really. Okay, maybe uh, one last one, and then we'll go. Well, thanks a lot for bringing this to our practice. I hear people say, you know, you, you want to take your practice off the pillow, and I, I definitely struggle with these issues. Um, in this way of using mindfulness for coping, you know, like um, when things get really tough or when you, the feelings are raging inside of you, and they should be when you're in a situation where it's so violent and so brutal, and you're in a hierarchy that is crushing you and forcing you to behave in ways that you might never behave. And I think about stories I've heard of basic training and how the soldiers are dehumanized so that they'll follow orders. (laughs) It feels like mindfulness training in this circumstance um, is a coping mechanism, is how to actually have more internal control over the things that are screaming in you and the, the disassociation that happens when you're doing things that are so against your nature, um, especially when you mentioned the military wives, I mean, coping with the grief and the loss and the trauma. And it feels like in the mindfulness practice that we use that we're not necessarily trying to cope or it's not all about controlling ourselves, but more about a curiosity and an exploration and a a hunger to know and understand so that we may make better choices. Um, But, yeah, so balance. So uh, you you bring up the capacity of mindfulness to increase wise discernment as far as choices or, uh, and particularly that that affects the amount of... um, trauma, post-traumatic stress, because as it's pointed out in one of the articles, much of the, the major um, um, psychological breakdown comes uh, not so much through combat, but when somebody in the military, because of their stress, then does something that is very unethical, like uh, going berserk and and killing innocent people or torching a place that they crack, then they do something major out of their uh, their orders and out of integrity, and that's when the the huge psychological breakdown happens. And so, and mindfulness has been shown to mitigate that. Um, so it operates on a number of different levels and. This is just a very complex subject. That's what it, I guess it'll come down to. And uh, it's good to see that it's, uh, this, this brings us back to the Buddha's instructions. Don't take anybody else's word for it. See for yourself, but have a very deep inquiry into what your heart says is aligned with your your true values, and so the the practice keeps on coming back to ourselves, and also not to see that mindfulness, as Alan was saying, is always the answer that in the context of integrity, in the context of um, compassion and empathy uh, in, in in the context of seeing actions having consequences then there's a fullness to the mindfulness practice that that truly um, awakens the heart. So it's time for us to go. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for thank you, um, thank you James, for doing thanks all your of you. work yeah. and uh, and for putting this issue together. And uh, we'll just close with a short loving kindness. Just feeling the peace inside of you and the place that longs for the well-being of
all, may all find inner peace. May all see through their confusion and share their love well, skillfully. May all know the highest happiness. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. very much. Have a good week. <laughs> See you next week. There, there are inquiring minds back there and want to also remind you that the inquiring mind is supported through donations. So there's an envelope in the issue and uh, that's how it keeps on going. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.